Hey, Matt Tuckman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Daniel Smith, postdoctoral fellow in philosophy at Cornell University, and he is here to talk about photographs and their vicissitudes. Daniel Smith, welcome. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. So photographs play an interesting role in our lives. They play the role, often, of evidence of things. So, for example, if I'm accused of robbing a bank and somebody produces a photograph of me pointing a gun at a bank teller and asking for money, that's considered to be at least some evidence that maybe I robbed the bank. Whereas, if somebody produced, like, an oil painting of me pointing a gun at a bank teller, that would not be considered evidence that I was robbing a bank. What do you think explains this difference? Why is a photograph considered to be evidence for something taking place, but, like, drawings and paintings and maybe some other kinds of images aren't? That's a really great, but also very natural question to ask. Um, So one of the things that I start to think about when I start worrying about these things is the wide variety of photographs that really don't just play an important role in our lives, as you said, but really pervade our lives. So a photo from a closed circuit camera of you pointing a gun at a bank teller does provide a certain degree of evidence of your nefarious activities. But the images in, say, a politician's commercial as he or she runs for president don't necessarily have the same documentary or evidentiary status. And so one of the things I'm interested in is what's the difference between those two photographic instances? You mentioned an oil painting of you robbing the bank. And it's true that that oil painting is only as good evidence as the painter who painted it is a good witness to the transaction. So you believe the painting as much as you believe the painter, given that she is skillful in depicting what really happened. Whereas the photograph seems like a reason for believing witnesses who also claim that you robbed the bank. It's not just that they provide you a reason for believing the image, it's the reverse. The image provides you with a reason for believing them when they say you were the one who held up the bank on 1st and 7th. But there are a lot of photographic images or photo-dependent media where we don't have that same intuition, where the fact that something is depicted in an image doesn't give us the same reason to believe that it happened. I mean, Commercial movies provide a host of examples of this. Nobody has ever destroyed the Death Star, but many of us saw it happen on screen and on film. So one of the things that I think really enters into the explanation of why we believe the closed-circuit video footage or why we accorded a, a degree of credence that we don't accord the oil painting has to do with understanding how those images came to be made. And I'm not sure that there's anything intrinsic to a photographically dependent way of producing an image 
that lends an especially high degree of credence to the image that results. So the Death Star example is interesting. It's interesting in particular because it's a visual effect, and visual effects, I think, are interpreted by film viewers maybe a bit differently from just ordinary shots of, like, a person in a room. But maybe to, like, take a different example from the same movie, maybe we would think that a shot of Han Solo in a spaceship is maybe it's not evidence that there was a person in Han Solo in a spaceship, but in a way, it's, it is an evi- it, it does uh, sort of document or provide evidence that there was a person in Harrison Ford, and for example, you can see the scar on his chin. So there was this person, and he had a scar on his chin, and so on and so forth. So isn't there a sense in which even shots in a fiction film provide evidence of something or other? Maybe not exactly evidence of the fictional story being not a fiction, but evidence of something. Yeah, they certainly provide evidence of something having happened. Um, So you said that one thing that we get on the film in Star Wars is something like an image of Han Solo in a spaceship. But in some sense, the viewership knows that what really was standing before the camera was not Han Solo in a spaceship, but Harrison Ford in a set, probably in Hollywood somewhere. So that enters into our interpretation of the image, right? We participate in the fiction because we're watching a movie. We went to the movie theater to see a movie, and we're participating in the fiction that it's Han Solo in a spaceship, but really deep down we know that it's Harrison Ford because we've seen him in other movies, Clear and Present Danger or what have you. And so we know that it's not Han Solo, that in fact Han Solo is not a person. He doesn't exist space travel of the sort depicted in the movie isn't possible. I think these background beliefs are incredibly pervasive and they're incredibly detailed and they enter into our interpretation of the image. And so they make it pretty facile for us to say, of course, we didn't really see the Death Star destroyed. What we saw was a model being blown up in some set or what we really saw was Harrison Ford on a set and not Han Solo in a spaceship. And even abstracting from the participation in a fiction, which I think is a very complicated enterprise, aesthetically and sociologically, the distinction between what the camera detected, what was standing before it, reflecting incident light, and what the image depicts as happening, is a distinction that we need to draw with respect to photographs, even to go back to your bank example what is detected by the photo and what the photo depicts as happening are two quite different questions, even if the answers happen to overlap in certain cases. And what enables us to navigate from the one to the other is often a host of background beliefs, many of which are very knowledgeable, about how the image was created. And I think without that background set of beliefs substantiating and reinforcing the testimony of the image, an image of you on closed-circuit TV pointing a gun at a bank teller is no more evidence of you having robbed a bank than is the oil painting. We need to know a lot about how those images were produced. But we do know a lot about how those images were produced in a standard case, and that's partly because we have very entrenched systems of dealing with such images. We have traditions of media, of closed-circuit television, of snapshots by the paparazzi, of billboard images, and we're just very fluent in these media, which doesn't make the background beliefs irrelevant, but it does make them 
a bit transparent to us at times. So this distinction between depicting and detecting is interesting. So tell me if I'm getting this right. When we look at a photograph, there are kind of two senses in which we can ask the question, what is this a photograph of? Take a still from Star Wars Episode Four, featuring Carrie Fisher. We can ask of it, what is this a photograph of? And an answer to one way of hearing the question is Princess Leia firing a blaster. And an answer to a different sense of the question is uh, Carrie Fisher holding a prop. So what you're trying to get at with this depicting versus detecting terminology is when we look at a photograph, we both try to figure out what sort of imaginary or hypothetical or conceivable sort of situation is it representing. And then the other question we ask about it simultaneously is what actual stuff on a particular occasion was in front of a camera that gave rise to this image. And we're able to ask that question because we know enough about the process of making a photograph to know that making a photograph involves sticking some stuff in front of a camera and doing a standard set of things, processing the film and so forth. And that our understanding of this process informs the significance we impart to a photograph. Is that the sort of thing that this uh, sort of depicting versus detecting distinction is trying to get at? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Detecting is essentially a causal process. And the upshot of that causal process need not be an intelligible image. I mean, if the film were overexposed to a certain degree, you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at the resulting image what was in front of the camera, but you would have like a causal record of the incident light. So that's one aspect of what a photograph is a photograph of. Then there's another aspect, which is what you do recognize in the artifact that's the result of the photographic process. Sometimes it's a picture of Carrie Fisher. And if we're also participating in a fiction of Star Wars and George Lucas universe, it's a picture of Princess Leia. But to just focus these questions on photography and what is involved in the photographic medium and the photographically dependent ways of making images, let's depart from fictional examples for a little bit and just try to tease apart these two aspects of a photographic picture in ordinary cases. So in the history of photography, one of the things that its discoverers or inventors, depending on how you want to look at it, were struck by and most excited by was the idea that nature is printing its own image on the film. And here you have detection and depiction really going hand in hand. They really pictured objects creating their images in the camera and impressing those images on the photosensitive materials. And I think that that's an incredibly natural way to think about the medium. I think it's one that continues to be natural to us today and I think it's one that the medium and the aesthetic tradition that it spawned continues to play with and in some ways capitalize on. But I think it's also deeply misleading if it's trying to capture the essence of what the medium most fundamentally is. So in order to bring out the difference between what I call detecting and depicting, and its relevance to photography in general, I want to change the example slightly. I want to depart from an example of Star Wars, 
where there's this fictional element in play, where we really participate in a fiction. Because I think that involves a lot of cognitive resources and a lot of other issues that aren't particular to photography. So I want to tell you about a kind of mind-bending photo that is at least passingly familiar to a lot of us. It's the idea of a photo finish at a race. These are most well-known from horse races. And what they look like at first glance is just a really high-speed photo of the horses as they're crossing the finish line or approaching the finish line. But that's not actually what they are. And you can bring out the difference between those and normal photos and, in so doing, bring out a distinction between what's detected and what's depicted if you understand a little bit more about how they're made. So a high-speed photo, which is not a photo finish, of a horse race would be a camera that's aligned with the finish line and it's got a lens on it and it's got a little box and the box has photosensitive materials in it and they make up a sort of rectangle. And you open the shutter and light floods in and exposes that whole rectangle at the same time. And so you're exposing whatever's open to the lens, that whole extended area of space, and you're mapping that onto a whole extended area of the light-sensitive materials, let's say just a negative. So we're not talking about a digital case, but it's very similar. So you've got this little square, and it just gets saturated with light over a very small expanse of time, and that's a snapshot. That's a high-speed photo. That's not how a photo finish works, even though it looks like that must be what it is. A photo finish doesn't use that little rectangle where the film would be, where the little negative would be. Instead, it has a little slit between the lens and that rectangular area where the photosensitive materials are. So if you just took a snapshot with a photo finish camera, you would just have a tiny little line, a razor thin line running vertically, and you wouldn't be able to see anything. It would be black and then this little line and then black. So in order to actually get an image, what you do is you move the film across this slit. So this is a little difficult to imagine, but let's close our eyes and I'll try to walk us through it. So you've got the horses running down the track. We've got our photo finish camera and it's aligned with the finish line and it's got this razor thin vertical slit that's aligned with the finish line. And we've got our film, which is not static in the rectangular space where it would normally be, I've got it over to the left, which is where the horses are coming from. And I'm going to move it along with the horses across the slit as they cross the finish line. And so instead of like screen printing a t-shirt where all of it gets smacked down at once, as you would in a a high-speed photo case, what I'm doing is like manually printing the t-shirt where one line of image is drawn in or printed in, then the next line of pixels is pixeled in, and then the next line, and then the next line. I'm building the image from right to left. And each line of the image that I sketch in, each line that gets smeared onto the film as it moves by the exposed slit, is an image of the finish line, or it's at least a detection of the finish line. And so in the finished product, 
what you've got is an image that looks just like a snapshot of horses running. But in fact, every vertical line you can draw on it is an image of the finish line. So the nose of one horse is at the finish line, and the tail of that horse is also at the finish line. Every point in the photo is the finish line. And the way you get that is by moving the film with the horses as they cross the finish line across this little vertical slit. So what's weird about this image is that it's photographic, it's made with these photosensitive materials, it detects this incoming light in the same way that other photos do, but it's like edited that light down to just this little bit, and in order to compensate for that, it's extended the exposure to match the motion of the horses. So what you get is an image that looks just like horses running. So what's depicted is horses galloping. And what's detected are these horse slices, these little finish line slices that are distributed in time. So if you're looking at the image, the right-hand corner happens sooner and is exposed sooner at an earlier time than the left-hand corner. And as you move from right to left across the finish line, you're growing later in time, but you're not moving in space. All the image is the same point. So what's detected is very, very different from what's depicted in the image. What's detected are horse slices across time. What's depicted is a horse running. Those are very different things. And so if we think about these extreme examples, or at least these unfamiliar examples, we begin to see that in order to get this very natural relation, which again, the originators and inventors of photography took to be obvious and so inspirational, in order to get this natural relation between detection and depiction, you actually have to build a whole lot into your apparatus. You have to make sure that your film isn't moving, that it's being exposed across the whole plane at the same time, that the image is being focused on it in a certain way. And once we start picturing just how much goes into the making of an image and how many things you can tinker with and vary and still have something that's an image, a depiction, that is produced by photographic detection, you see how many background assumptions and traditional media conventions go into the making of every photographic image we look at. Yeah, it's an interesting case. So it looks like a normal image, a normal just high-speed photo of a bunch of horses crossing the finish line. But in fact, it's not that. And maybe just like one little example to bring out how different it is, is in a normal photograph, if I see this one horse to the left of this other horse, I take that to be an indication that this one horse was to the left of this other horse at this moment in time. And that that's what the photograph both is depicting and that's what it's evidence of. If in a photo finish, I see this one horse to the left of this other horse, actually, that isn't evidence of a single instant during which the one horse was to the left of this other horse. What it in fact is, is an image of a few milliseconds later of the same location, but in the image, it's spatially like to the left of what in reality was the same location. 
That's exactly right. What we have here is the spatialization of time. So the distance in the photo finish between the horses is not the amount of meters in space that separated them, but the amount of seconds in time. So the difference in time is mapped on and represented as a difference in space. And that's difficult to get our minds around. And one of the reasons we find it so natural to think about these as just snapshots is because it more closely resembles our own perception of the horses as they gallop across the finish line. Sure, it's more distinct. You can tell differences in hoof placement in the photo finish that you can't when you're just watching the race because everything blurs together. But you're like, it's the same kind of thing. And it's not the same kind of thing. What's being detected by the photo finish is something we could never perceive. But one of the things that's interesting about photo finishes is we run the film at the same speed that the horses run. Now, why do we do that? We could pull the film twice as fast as the horses run. Then they would be more spread out because the film would cover more ground than they're covering. And so it would proceed faster than they would proceed. And so you'd have more space in the resulting images between them. But that would also stretch out the horses. One of the reasons we run the film at the same speed the horses run is we want the result to look like a picture of horses, horses running at the Kentucky Derby or what have you. And so one of the things we have here is the photo finish is meant to play an evidentiary role to return to one of our earlier themes. It's supposed to tell you which horse crossed the finish line first. And it does that. It could do that job even better if we ran the film way faster. But if we did that, the image would look distorted. The horses would be distended. They would be elongated. The hooves would be streaked into other horses in some cases. It would be a mess. And we don't want that. So we have these competing demands that we place on the photo finish image. We want it to look like a recognizable picture of horses that doesn't dilapidate them and distort them. We also want it to play an evidentiary role. And we've found a balance between these two demands. But these demands are importantly different. And I want us to keep in mind those differences when we look at other photographic images as well, even where those demands aren't in such stark competition with one another. You're sort of tempted to say about this case that the reason they don't run the film twice as fast as the horses, uh, creating the streaking effect is that it looks more familiar in the standard way, running it at the same speed as the horses. It looks more like the kind of image we're used to looking at. I wonder whether if we lived in a culture where streaky photo finish images at double speed were as ubiquitous as Renaissance perspective looking still images are in our current society, whether, yeah, I wonder whether in that society we would, as it were, read them as automatically as we read the kinds of images we're used to looking at now. Absolutely. I think a degree of fluency in a tradition of image making plays a really fundamental role in even the most instinctive, immediate, natural uptake of images. So to use another uh, kind of far out example that, again, should be really familiar to all of us from the press and from other things. So we've got these beautiful images produced by the Hubble Space Telescope. 
right? We get images of the Crab Nebula. We get images of the Eagle Nebula. We get images of galaxies that have numbers. I'm not going to pretend to remember. These are magnificent. They're majestic, and they're really complicated to make. And not just because the camera has to be in outer space, but because the things they're recording, the light they're recording, doesn't even fall within our visual spectrum. Most of it, a lot of it's in the ultraviolet spectrum, a lot of it's in the infrared spectrum. So much higher wavelengths and much lower wavelengths than what we can see with the naked eye. So this is how a Hubble image is made in a really simplified fashion. And I encourage viewers to go to the Hubble website where they have like a pretty simplified explanation of how they make their photos. So a Hubble image consists of at least three distinct photos, always at least three, sometimes more. So let's say photo number one, they expose for a certain portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. Let's say ultraviolet. That we wouldn't be able to see with the naked eye, but they can take a photo of it with their special cameras with a certain filter on them. The resulting image from that camera, camera one, is going to be a black and white image. But then they'll take another photo, a photo say in the visual spectrum. That photo will also be a black and white photo. And then they'll take another photo that's in the infrared spectrum, and that photo will also be black and white. But then they take these three photos together. And they stain them different colors, so they might stain the ultraviolet one violet, just for simplicity's sake, and they might stain the infrared one red, and then they might stain the in-between one, the visual spectrum one, green, and then they overlap these photos, like putting different slides right on top of one another, and what you get is this full-color image, but the colors that we see in the image. Don't reflect colors that we might be able to see if we were in a spaceship looking at the nebula. They're artificially created. Now there are a number of things that are interesting about this process. One is that we've got a single image produced out of a number of different photographs. So what's detected is very, very different from what's depicted because what's depicted is a single thing, and what's detected is a plurality. So that's one big difference. Another big difference is what's detected is not intrinsically colored, and what's depicted has this full color range. But one of the more interesting things about this, and there's a recent book by a Stanford art historian about how this, or at least it's her argument about how these images came to be, is the color choice. How do they start to assign colors to these different images? And she argues that. They were influenced by a tradition of landscape painting and abstract expressionism in the American tradition, because part of what NASA wanted to convey was a sense of exploration, a sense of a new frontier, and they wanted the palette of the images to reflect that. So here, what we've got is an immensely complicated confluence of different image traditions. You've got a tradition of abstract expressionism in painting, where you're not even depicting anything. You've got that, which is influenced by a tradition of landscape painting and ultimately landscape photography of the West. And all of that is going into a choice of colors that we use to make images of things we couldn't see 
in space. So we're visualizing the invisible. And the tools we use and the traditions we draw on to visualize the invisible themselves draw on other imagistic and visualizing resources that aren't intrinsic to the photographic process that we exploit to make these images. So a lot of different things are coming together here. And what's astonishing is how fluent we are with all of them. We're totally fluent with Hubble images. We think it's really unproblematically the case that you can look at a photographic picture of the Crab Nebula. We've got this beautiful infrared picture of Saturn. It's a picture of Saturn, but we could never see that kind of thing with the naked eye. So one of the things that's interesting here is the play between what's perceivable and what's visualizable and the tools of visualization we draw on in exploiting photographic processes to make something visualizable that's not perceivable. But in the background of all of our consumption of these images is our ordinary understanding of the kind of examples we started with, closed circuit television or something, where what you're depicting, what you're visualizing, is something you could just as well perceive. And that assumption starts to influence our interpretation of the Hubble images rather than the reverse, which is kind of interesting. We imagine that you go out in deep enough space with sharp enough eyes, you would see the Crab Nebula as Hubble depicts it. But we can't. It's physiologically impossible. But that assumption, that extension of what we take to be these standard cases of photography to these other cases is really kind of telling. It's informed a tradition, but at the same time, it's based on a number of misconceptions about how these photos are made. This also reminds me of the example of looking at cell tissue under a microscope. One difference there would be that, whereas maybe we could take a space shuttle someday and look at a nebula kind of up close or whatever, there's a decent case to be made that we can never shrink ourselves and look at a paramecium up close. And then there's also the color issue there as well, because they have to stain cells to be able to look at them under a microscope a certain color, and then you choose the color you're going to stain it. It doesn't actually you know, natively have that color. You do that so that you can see something. Otherwise, it would just look like nothing. And that would seem to be another case of a photograph that seems to serve as evidence of some fact, but it raises interesting questions about how the conventions of slide microscope photographs are influenced by our sort of common sense feelings about what things look like. Like, yeah, is there something that a paramecium looks like? It's not clear that there is. Yeah, exactly. I love that example. It's a great example. Um, And it's undeniable that photography and optics extend our capacity to represent things that we couldn't possibly perceive. You know, we can get representations of paramecia. We now have electron microscopes. We can visualize, as I want to say, instead of see, we can visualize all this stuff that you could never perceive, no matter how many carrots you ate and how sharp your eyes were. So... One of the things that we've been talking about is how other traditions of consuming images influence how we interpret those representations. And I want to dig into that a little bit more. So let's take a non-photographic example. So a microscope is like one step away from photography a little bit, but let's just go whole hog away from the visual altogether. 
let's talk about seismographs. So seismographs, for you fans of Tremors, that brilliant Kevin Bacon movie, that's just so good, um, we get this rolling scroll of graph paper and we've got the little needle and the needle is quiet and then it begins zigzagging back and forth and what it's recording is the shaking of the earth and i think both photographs and seismographs obey their etymology so photographs graph photo light they graph light seismographs graph shaking earthquakes ultimately but they graph shaking So both photographs and seismographs have this causal linkage to what they're detecting that makes them at least potentially great sources of evidence about phenomena in the natural world. But they package that information in very different ways. A seismograph just like extends it on paper and it's got those peaks and valleys like you'd look at in a math class or something. And you can measure the frequency and the amplitude and all of that. A photograph packages it not just in that graph shape or that graph structure, but in the structure of an image, of something that's recognizable, of something that feels very much like a perception of the thing itself. And part of what confuses me and fascinates me about photographic images is that it has this causal dimension, but it also has that particular structure of packaging of the information. It has this imaging dimension. And I think that imaging dimension, it really elicits a very natural response in us. We're very, very fluent. We're naturally fluent in images. We recognize things. We have those perceptual recognitional capacities, and they're called upon when we see images. Not just photographic images, I'd argue. Also, your oil painting and, you know, your lithograph and all that sort of stuff. But I think that natural response we have to imagery can sometimes mislead us into thinking that photographs are a special kind of thing. They have the causal imprimatur. They have this causal authority that gives them the evidentiary status. And then they have this comestible fluency of imagery that we're familiar with from cave paintings and smiley faces and emoticons and all the rest. And they seem to be doing both at once. And that makes us think of them in almost magical ways. But I think the two things that they're doing are still quite distinct. And the only way to understand what a photograph is like and why some of them have evidentiary power and some of them don't is to tease those things apart and see how they're doing the one in virtue of the other, how they're depicting in virtue of detecting, or sometimes depicting despite what they're detecting, as in the case of the photo finish. Yeah, so a photograph is like a seismograph in the sense that it provides evidence that something or other took place. And likewise, a seismograph provides evidence that some shaking of the earth took place. Or another example might be, um, you know, a fossil provides evidence that whatever, there was a dinosaur with this shaped foot or something. But unlike a photograph, you don't get the feeling that you're looking at a dinosaur when you look at a fossil. And you don't get the feeling that you're looking at an earthquake when you look at a seismograph. So these other examples of like evidence for stuff don't share this feature with photography where they give you the sense that you're looking at the thing that there's evidence for. 
So photography does both. And then maybe a drawing, on the other hand, does just the one. That maybe gives you the sense that you're looking at something, but we don't assume that it, or we don't take it to be, you know, evidence for some existing thing in reality. I can draw a drawing of a unicorn, even though there's no unicorn. I can't exactly take a photograph of a unicorn. I mean, I could take a photograph of a horse with a cardboard cylinder glued to its head and try to pass it off as a unicorn, but there's a sense in which it wouldn't actually be a photograph of a unicorn. So I guess we have this taxonomy then of like three different kinds of thing. We have uh, sort of like near evidence, and then we have pictures that don't count as evidence, and then we have photographs kind of in the middle, which count as evidence, but then also have the quality of pictures of these things that give you the sense that you're looking at something. That's right. But one of the things I, I want to bring out, and one of the things I'm really interested in, in thinking about photographic images, is like this in-between category actually involves way more of the traditions of imaging, the traditions of painting and drawing, than we might ordinarily appreciate. So to give a high historical digression for a moment, even the word camera comes from camera obscura, this dark chamber. Now, a camera obscura was a little box with a very small hole and aperture at the front of it, a lens, and it would project an image onto the back wall. And these things existed way before we discovered photography, photosensitive materials. They were known in the Renaissance. And in fact, they were used by painters and draftsmen to basically give a visual aid to drawing images in accordance with the theory of perspective. So these are little mechanisms that help you get your perspective right. And you can construct them in such a way that they obey the geometry of perspective as it was outlined at the time. You can also build them in a way such that they violate those laws of perspective, but we weren't interested in doing that. We were interested in developing these new exciting forms of depth representation through perspective that came into circularity and popularity in the Renaissance. So what if things had gone differently? What if instead of being fascinated with perspectival representations of depth, we had started building our camera obscura to do something different, to not have a flat plane against which the image is projected, but one that was bent or curved or otherwise what we would think of as distorted. But if that were the standard, then perspectival images would be distorted to us. But as it happens, our tradition is built around this, this theory of perspective that came into being in the Renaissance. And that's literally built into the mechanisms we use to make the photographs with which we're most familiar. Your digital camera, even the little camera on your phone, has a lens that's meant to focus light in the right way. And so it's actually a history of painting and a history of draftsmanship that's influenced by this theory of perspective that goes into making a camera obscura that's then used in making light-sensitive photographic cameras that's then used in ultimately making your iPhone 6 and all of the images that they plaster around saying, look, taken with the iPhone 6. So I think even the imagistic component of photos isn't just a mixture of the detecting and the depicting. The depicting imagistic element of photos is hugely indebted 
to a tradition of dealing with visual representations that has centuries and centuries of medial convention informing it and structuring it. So I guess a moral that I would try to draw from these examples we've been discussing then is that since we live in a sort of media-saturated world and a lot of our views and opinions about what's taking place are informed by these images we receive that are intended to serve as evidence for things, perhaps we should spend a bit more time just thinking about that process, thinking about the process by which we take ourselves to have learned something about the state of the world from an image and how that process might be sort of informed somehow or possibly even distorted by the conventions of viewing images that aren't photographs or at least how there can be kind of a deep interplay between those two human practices so that we can kind of like make the most responsible use possible of this kind of information that we're meant to be making sense of on a daily basis. Yeah, I think, I mean, we definitely have reached a good why-do-you-care moment. So I'm making all of these distinctions between depicting and what it's an image of and detecting and what its causal linkage is and what it can be evidence for. But who really cares? And I think the prevalence of photographic images in our culture is one reason to care. So I think advertising can have a really pernicious effect on us if we don't understand the ways in which the evidentiary aspect of those photos is really, really distinct from the imagistic aspect of those photos. What those photos are images of has almost nothing to do, in many cases, with what was standing in front of the camera. And they're playing on the naturalness of this quasi-perceptual relation to the image and backing it up with the testimony of photography as this evidentiary causal linkage to the, the subject in order to give that image even more conviction and ultimately selling power. And that's really dangerous. But there are also more intimate examples that don't just have to do with being a responsible consumer of our imagistic culture, but have to do with understanding your own relation to your own private images. So one of the reasons I got fascinated by photography is we just had shoeboxes full of family snapshots and I got really attached to a lot of them. And I got curious about my attachment. Like, what am I attached to in being attached to the image of my father or, you know, my brother playing when he was younger or whatever? And I think part of what making these distinctions enables me to do is to realize that I have a real connection to the image as an image of my brother at a certain age when I don't remember knowing him. But also there is a this detection linkage to an event in his life, the taking of this picture. So whereas if we go with our natural common sense understanding, I would explain my own attachment to this photograph in terms of, oh, it's like seeing my brother as a child. And I get to see him as an adult when he's a child. And so it's like having that perceptual relationship to him, which I didn't get to have, what a miracle photography is. I can see him and indeed myself at a younger age. My God, it's like time travel. I don't think that's what's going on. And if you can make this distinction between detection and depiction, 
you can start to understand your own reactions to photos differently. What I've begun to be tempted to think is going on there is that it's not like perceiving him as a child. What it's like is seeing an image of a child and knowing that that image literally arose at a time during his childhood, often a time when I was around. That photo is, to use your example, it's like a fossil of that day. It's like the seashells we collected on the beach that day that I still have as a memento. So a lot of these photos of intimates and loved ones, they're much more like the sweater of a departed loved one that you can still kind of smell and cuddle with than they are like a replica of them. But I think our temptation is to really think of them as a replica of them, of this like little mini version of them, the at least visually perceptible image of them or version of them that we've somehow retained from time lost. And I think that that can be a dangerous way or at least an impoverished way of thinking about what they are. There are no versions of us that stick around. Those versions are gone. But what does remain is a certain kind of fossil. And in order to relate to our photographs and indeed to our own past, which they document in a little bit more honest and a little bit more detailed and sophisticated way, I think we need to make some of these distinctions about the image that's depicted and the tradition that informs our interpretation and consumption of it on the one hand, and then the attachment we have to the documentary detecting aspects of the photo as real relics and fossils of whatever the event of their creation involved. Daniel Smith, let this audio recording stand as irrefutable evidence that a very stimulating conversation took place between you and me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, We should take a picture. It'll last longer. Dode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Mm -hmm.